So I didn't have my paint. So what I did is I took the earth. It was this beautiful golden color earth. And I baked it to get rid of any impurities. And then I sifted it with a mosquito net that I happened to find in my room. So I had the soil, beautiful color, and that became my paint. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Panels. I'm your host, Barbara St. Clair, and I am here with Rosemarie Prince, who is a mixed media artist, also a multimedia artist. Rosemarie, welcome. Thank you, Barbara. How are you today? I'm very well. I just came from teaching my wonderful students at the Marian Arts Center, and I'm doing very well. What were you teaching them? Painting. I teach painting at the Marian Arts Center. Well, that's excellent. And I, I want to start out today reading something that I read about you this morning. Prin's mixed media work probed the notion of trauma and healing, destruction and rebirth. She slashes or burns her canvases, then repairs the wounds with wire stitches that branch off like waterways or coalesce surprisingly into crosses. She colors the canvases beneath the suture-like stitches with bruised images of healing flesh, the blackened effect of a burn, the signals of pain that precede recovery, metaphors she naturally associates with life. Prin's work voicelessly discloses a self-portrait. What do you think about that? That was written quite a long time ago. I had a show in Richmond, Virginia, and she was writing about a series that I did called Bound Crosses and Boundary Crossings. And it was all about, in a very, very abstract, non-representational way, it was all about my experience growing up white in South Africa. Um, and I, I had left South Africa in 1972, which is a long time ago. But sometime during the late 80s and early 90s, I started to really explore what it means to be a white South Africa. And these works, that did express a lot of, of pain and angst. They were dark, like the dark continent. And there were a lot of sutures and wounds that were being healed with stitching, wire stitching, because I had dressmakers in my family. Um, so I, too, was pretty capable with needle and thread. And so all of these things came together in these big canvases that I was working on at that time. Now, for my current body of work, I'm less violent and aggressive with the canvas, so I don't burn it or slice it or anything like that. Not for this series anyway, but I, I still love to throw paint at the canvas. Um, I love to just be very spontaneous with the paint and experience the medium and see what happens. But no slashing and burning. <laughs> well, I, I always like slashing and burning in art. I think it uh, gets the thought process moving. But what was very interesting to me about the comments um, was the notion of healing and a sense of transcendence. When I saw your work for the first time, I hadn't read anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, I just sort of actually was looking. You are a, a, an award recipient, a grantee for Creative Pinellas, and I was looking for pictures to, uh, in a presentation, some of the work that we had supported. And I came across one of your, I think, more new paintings. And I felt that it was about healing and overcoming and transcendence without having read anything about it. And oh. it does strike me that that is a... Uh, something that you're quite interested in. Absolutely. Regardless of whether I'm slashing and burning the canvases or not, it's something that's been consistent 
for a long time. Talk about that. Why? I know it's hard for an artist to say why something is important, but why is that important? Well, isn't that the essence of the human condition, that we're on this planet and we have to struggle with all sorts of, oh, hurdles that we have to overcome. And it's in that process that we move towards an enlightened state, ideally. Of course, many people, that doesn't happen for many people. Many people become embittered and angry and, and lose hope and all the other things that can happen. But it is the human condition to suffer and um, we hope that at some point we can resolve those sad, bad moments in our life and find some, find, find some healing. And different people do it in different ways. I do it through meditation and, so, of course, painting. <laughs> so when you do your painting and the process of painting for you is a healing process? Yes, I would say so. It, it's, that's why that's why I love to paint because there's not always a whole lot of reason for painting. You know, it's not something that's really supported in in this world. It's much more accepted to go out and earn a whole lot of money than it is to be in your studio alone, alone painting. But it's just such a rewarding activity, and it, it, the time passes. It just disappears. <laughs> and do you see the paintings as healing for the people who look at them as well? I have experienced that. People have told me I have stood in front of my work uh, with different people at different times and tears have streamed down their faces and people have said that it brought up stuff that had been buried and it felt such a to be such a healing experience to see it visualized in front of them. This was one of these people was a, a Vietnam War veteran and the other was a woman who had lost her child to suicide. And there have been other people who've spoken like that about my work, but those two are very vivid in my memory. Can you tell me, can you describe for the people who are listening, describe the painting that you were standing in front of when people had that experience? Well, the woman whose son had committed suicide. Um, we were in San Francisco at the time and we were looking at a very large dark painting. It was almost entirely black with um, the rivers that you described being sliced into the canvas. They were sliced and then stitched up and a, a heavy, heavily impastoed surface on the painting. And that was a painting that moved her to tears. Um, that one. And I can remember another experience that was in San Francisco, but another one in New Mexico. A woman saw one of my very first, in fact, it was probably the very first painting of that series. And she had the same experience of just tearing up and starting to cry in front of a painting that had been done in New Mexico using the, f the fact that they have a freeze in New Mexico during the winter, not like here, but it actually freezes. And I was able to exploit that in my work and the, the surface of my painting, which I left out during the winter, crazed and cracked and got this wonderful textural surface that um, became very emotive. Um, I mean, it, it definitely was a charged surface, I think, and oh. she related to that. Charged by nature, it sounds like. Charged by nature, yes. I like to collaborate with nature whenever I can. Mother Nature... It can be very difficult, but can also be a wonderful collaborator. <laughs> so you grew up in South Africa, and did you start painting as a child? Yes, I was always the artist in school from mm -hmm. first grade. 
Yeah. And, uh, and I was encouraged by my father, who was an artist. I was telling somebody in a conversation last night, in fact, that she was belittling the notion of going to art school. And I said how important that had been for me because I had found a mentor in art school, which I would not have found had I not gone to the San Francisco Art Institute. And his name was Sam Jekalian. Um, He's no longer with us. But he was definitely instrumental in helping me find my voice as an artist. How would you describe your voice? Ah. (laughs) Um, Well, that's an interesting question. I, again, I'd have to refer to some things that my mentor at art school said so many years ago. I was a representational artist, you know, working from the model and doing all the other things that everybody else was doing in class. Um, And then Sam Chikalian said to me, don't paint anything, just paint. And that was very liberating and also very terrifying because I didn't have any constraints, you know, any familiar constraints, but just the liberty of putting paint on the canvas. And there's no way I think anybody can paint and be a complete tabula rasa. We've all got a history that we bring to our work. And so, you know, I'll reference my history as a white South African in the work, but it becomes very, very uh, abstract. And other people will look at it, hopefully, and see something that they can relate to that has nothing to do with being a white South African, that has something to do with their own history. Basically, that's what I strive for in my work, to work non-representationally and abstractly, but also to make have a universal appeal. You said something so intriguing to me about approaching a canvas and non-representational and the liberation of that. So how do you take that first step? of putting color or brush to a canvas. Right, that's the scary part, having a white canvas. And sometimes that's where, um, for instance, when I was working on my PhD and I didn't have a whole lot of time to spend in the studio, I took a great big canvas and I hid it. I was living in Virginia at the time and I put it under the house where the, the moisture and the dirt would become ingrained in the canvas. And in a way, Mother Nature started that process for me. And then I took the canvas out from under the house and spread it out and then was able to work with what was already there. But that was one piece. Sometimes it's just simply just randomly picking something up and putting it on the canvas. And lately, I've been working on series and for instance, with this work that uh, is in this brochure called um, Sanctuary, that was a show I had at HCC in Tampa. That series was about Florida springs and water. So I limited myself to blues, which is easy because I like blues, and, and created paintings that were very non-representational, but still in the blues of various blues relating to water. I sense that you often make series of paintings. I I think um, always. Okay. Yes. So how do you know as an artist how many paintings are in a series? Oh, it's not that linear. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> no. Um, it's more like I explore a theme mm-hmm. um, until I'm done with it, until I've kind of 
depleted that line of thought. <laughs> For instance, with this work called um, Sanctuary, this installation was a, an installation that addressed the, the loss of habitat through these abstract paintings and um, a tree that stood in the, an abstract tree that stood in the middle of the floor on a bed of sand and um, these moths were dangling around the tree um, and they all look half dead you might say because they're all made with bones and handmade paper and dried seeds and things like that so they don't look like vital living objects as much as they look like their their habitat is being depleted. The work took a whole different direction <laughs> than what I had anticipated. Um, you know that I won that grant, for which I was enormously grateful because it enabled me to do something I had wanted to do all my life or all my adult life, and that is to go to India. Uh-huh. So I had always thought about it, and then having this extra money enabled me to just do it. So I traveled to India and I stayed at an artist retreat called the Sanskriti Kendra outside of New Delhi. Um, and I thought I, all my work would focus on the Yamuna River, which is the most polluted river in India, and it happens to run through New Delhi. But when I arrived at the Sanskriti Kendra, I was so impressed by these trees that were so beautifully tended throughout their four acres of property that were labeled with in Hindi and English and that were surviving in, in spite of the horrendous smog in that area that descends at night. And in spite of the polluted water, these trees were surviving and they spoke to me. And so instead of focusing on the water, of course, I was always conscious of the water because you never drink the water out of the tap. Or the f <laughs> you have to be really, really careful. But instead of focusing on the downside of being in India, which of course is the poverty, the pollution, the water pollution, the air pollution, all of that. I found myself moving towards the, the consolation that you find in those dark places. Um, and I had experienced a death in my family, so I was looking for consolation. And I found that in those trees. And so I started working with the trees and the leaves. <laughs> so since you work abstractly, can you talk a little bit about how we might see those trees and those leaves? Well, f for the very first time in, probably since I was at art school, pretty much the very first time, there have been little forays into representational work, but for the very first time I was working completely representationally. I my paints were confiscated on the way over to India. My 23 tubes of oil paints were confiscated by the airlines. So I didn't have my paint. Wow. So what I did is I took the earth. It was this beautiful golden color earth. And I baked it to get rid of any impurities in the microwave. And then I sifted it with a mosquito net that I happened to find in my room. And so I was. I had the soil, beautiful color, that was going to be my pigment, and to, to the art supply store to buy medium to mix with the uh, pigment, and that became my paint. And then I found I found a source for beautiful Indian handmade paper, and so the ground was the soil, and then I took the leaves and I placed them on the soil, and I traced very meticulously around those leaves, different trees, and painted them black on these golden surfaces. There's a narrative element, but there's also, it's also more reflective, you know, just um, they, they reflect 
what I feel in those places, both the sadness of seeing the pollution and the depletion, but also my love and joy of simply being in nature. So I want to ask you a question because you having your paints confiscated, <laughs> which is right. a big loss, <laughs> but you yeah. no longer had them. Uh-huh. And, and so I'm following you along of making pigment from the soil. Mm-hmm. But then you went to an art supply place. And so I'm thinking, okay, why didn't you just buy new paint at the art supply I place? could have, and I certainly considered that. However, oil paints are expensive. And if I was going to have to buy oil paints and then have them confiscated on my way back from India, because I wasn't going to be swimming back from India, I'd have to fly back and they would be confiscated again. I decided, and no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use, which happened, I had no idea that I was going to be surrounded by this beautiful soil. And I have used soil in my work quite consistently for many years, ever since I was in the land of Georgia O'Keeffe, mm-hmm. <laughs> and found this beautiful red micaceous clay that I worked with then. That was the first time I used it. And so I've been using it off and on in different places ever since. And here, it, here was the soil that was this beautiful golden color. So, hey, forget about the oils. I'll mm-hmm. use this instead. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what artists are supposed to do? Be creative on the spot? <laughs> well, I was thinking that, but also, you know, you had talked about nature a few times in that conversation so far. And also you were talking about healing and sanctuary and also having had an, a, a, a death in your own family and a personal experience and, and needing healing in mm-hmm. a sense from that. And it struck me as you were talking, and especially when you, you talked about when you put the painting under your house, when you were going for your PhD and mm-hmm. got it started that way, that of course, reaching into the soil and touching it and using it and drawing it out and using it to create something that was... Well, certainly... Um, transformative. Transformative, thank you so is much. Is the word, yeah. Yes, um, that all seemed to me to make perfect sense. Yes, but of course it was instinctive. It wasn't logical. It wasn't something I thought, okay, I have this pain and I have to find a way. It, it wasn't anything like that. It was just instinctive. The trees spoke to me in this way that became a healing act of placing the leaves down and tracing around them. That was a healing act. And using the soil, you know, dust to dust and ashes to ashes and all that. And none of that I, th- I thought about at the time. But retrospectively, of course, I've, I've considered that. And it, yes, it was a very healing activity. Really blessed for having had that experience. I actually recently came back from Mexico. Um, I was an artist retreat in Mexico, and I took this work to Mexico with me, uh, the series, and I worked there to finish it and started a new series with watercolors this time, not oil paints. So I know from your biography that you have shown often in many places and some very, very significant places, but I would presume that introducing a new, new works to the public is always a little bit scary. It certainly is, yeah. Um, particularly this body of work, because, okay, the pieces I just described are golden soil with black silhouettes of leaves. That's not very colorful, though. That's consistent with what I've done pretty much throughout my life. But um, more recently for the series of uh, the works for Sanctuary, I started incorporating color blues, as I mentioned. And then coming back from India, there, there's all this color. I mean, 
wow, there's just so many brilliant colors. And that obviously influenced me because I came back from India and started painting with a lot of color. And yeah, that's pretty scary because I'm thinking, oh, people are going to say she's sold out, she's getting decorative, whatever. But um, I'm just moved to use this color right now. And so I'm exploring it <laughs> and having fun doing it, I have to say. And suddenly here I am, essentially an old woman doing something completely new and different. And, and so, yes, I have to sort of stand back and, and question that. And I, I know others will too. <laughs> we grow as human beings. Hopefully we grow until the day we die. And that needs to be expressed in, in our creative process, in our work. So, so I'm uh, falling in love with color right now. <laughs> so do you feel as an artist living here that it's, it's a supportive and nurturing community? No, we still don't have art patrons. Um, and any artist you speak to pretty much will say the same thing, that the patrons aren't here to support the arts. Um, the organizations are blooming everywhere, and uh, grants are coming back, which is wonderful. Um, so these things are happening, but still there's a dearth of patrons to support the arts. Uh, crafts if I can differentiate, which some people don't like one to do, but, you know, if you're making inexpensive pots and things like that, you'll probably find a market for them. But um, the arts, in terms of um, large paintings and sculpture and things like that, there's a very limited market for that here. Well, I read something that said most artists do not sell in the communities they live in. They sell other well, places. unless you live in New York or Los Angeles. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's true. So you choose a place and then you have to work to sell the work elsewhere. So where is your art? And ironically and unfortunately, um, I've shown my work in galleries from Atlanta to Jacksonville um, to uh, Sarasota to several galleries here in the St. Pete area. And all of those galleries bar one have all closed down. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they all closed down one by one. So yeah, right now my art is in my studio and I show my work out of my studio and sometimes I sell it out of my studio. And I'm, and I have shows like the one at HCC and studio at 620. And I had a solo show at the Marian Art Center. Previous year, Catherine Pill had awarded me best of show at the Marian. And so part of the the prize was to have a solo show. And so I worked on a collaborative installation called Homeland Lost and Found, which was inspired by a poem by an Iraqi poet named Salah al-Hamdani, Baghdad Monamur. So I got together with a composer and a videographer and a calligrapher. And of course, this poem was the inspiration for this. And we did this installation at the Morian. The music was beautiful and the calligraphy is beautiful and everybody just work together to create a, a, a great installation. But I don't have a gallery that represents me like I did when I had those galleries that closed down. Mm -hmm. um, I want to pick up a thread that you mentioned some time ago in this conversation, and, and I'm guessing that it ties to your interest in going to India, but you said that you you meditate. Right. And I have a series of works um, that are entitled... Um, meditation on Hari, meditation on a red planet, so on and so forth. And um, the first one of those pieces, I I kind of was in meditation and I saw this this image of 
gold red golden red and and just started painting that and the series came out of it so yes i've been meditating since the mid 70s my work is much more serious than is um currently fashionable you know the postmodern era is more about cynicism uh <laughs> and i i i i'm not that that person you know i'm i'm not the cynic and i'm much more involved in in things that for me are meaningful mm-hmm than a lot of what's currently fashionable right now in the postmodern era. So do you think that growing up in South Africa and growing up in apartheid and that sense of the police state that was there, do you think that that's part of why your art is serious today? I was politicized there, yeah, from the age of eight. I mean, I can remember an event that happened when I was eight that woke me up to the racial divide. Um, and yeah, so I was politicized there, and I haven't stopped being a political person as well as an artist. So I'm an f- artist, I'm a feminist, and I'm political. Is that a challenge in our current environment for you? Well, um, in our current environment, because of what's happening at the White House, there's a whole resurgence of activism, which is, it's great. I mean, the f- feminism is no longer a dirty word as it was for quite a while. Now, I mean, take for example, the Women's March in St. Petersburg here in January. I mean, how many people were there? Over 25,000 or something? It was incredible. That wouldn't have happened <laughs> even a year ago. So. Yeah, so that's, um, it's unfortunate that it's the events that are happening in Washington, D.C. that are triggering this. Something I've noticed in our conversation is that you take things that are challenging, to say the least, and you find a way to turn that to your favor somehow, turn it into a benefit. Yeah, well, isn't that what artists are supposed to do? They're supposed to make lemonade out of lemons. You know, one of my favorite expressions when I'm teaching is there are, and I'm quoting my mentor at the San Francisco Art Institute when I say this, there are no mistakes in art. And then I add, only opportunities. So, you know, oh my goodness, I've made a terrible mistake. I have to tear this up, rip it up, throw it away. Uh, No, um, work with it, you know, see where that takes you. Find its logical conclusion. It's just a new problem to address and deal with. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's what I teach my students, and so therefore I obviously have to follow that same mantra, rule, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. However, some some people just won't hear that. You know, they have, have such a rigid notion of what they need to achieve and how it has to achieve that they won't hear that, that they can move through that and on. What happens when someone does hear that? I had that experience recently. A woman brought her mother to class, and the mother is a painter. She has a degree in painting, but she's in a wheelchair now, and she has very, very limited mobility. But she's always painted very, very representationally you know, from a photograph, tried to make her painting look exactly like a photograph. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we worked from a model, and she did these beautiful abstract drawings from the model. And I was just, I, I, I loved them, but she couldn't see what I could see because it was, what didn't look like the model. 
but I persuaded her to take these drawings and superimpose them one on top of the other and one next to the other and just create an abstract composition. And um, she did that. And her daughter very proudly showed me a photograph of the completed canvas. And she said to me, my mother says, oh, I think I'm an abstractionist now. And the daughter is just thrilled because it's given her mother a whole new lease on life. Um, And that's what she's going to keep doing, apparently. She's going to keep working in this vein, which is is very successful. It looks lovely. You opened the door for her, or she opened the door for herself with your help. She found the door, yes. Yeah, she found. So that happens, and it happens more often than not. Otherwise, I still wouldn't have my students. (laughs) And I have students who've been coming to me for over 15 years. (laughs) Every, Every week, they're there, so... Rose Marie Prince, thank you so very much for taking time to talk with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Barbara. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.